The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, I have an extra special guest. His name is Paul Wilmot. And if you are remotely interested in anything having to do with quantitative finance, then this is the podcast for you. Uh, he is not only a colleague and peer of such esteemed quants, as Emmanuel Derman and uh, Nassim Taleb, who is really more of a pure mathematician. Uh, but he is the purveyor of the world's largest website on quantitative finance. He has written numerous books on uh, textbooks on quantitative finance. Uh, he has helped create the certificate uh, for fi finance uh, quant work, and he has just been... Uh, absolutely on the forefront of identifying what's wrong with financial models, markets, derivatives, risk-taking. There, there are a few people who understood why uh, the financial crisis of 0809 was coming uh, more specifically and earlier than he did. Eight years in advance, he was warning, hey, these models are really problematic and, and they're going to result in, in big problems. Um they're going to result in real issues, and he turned out to be not only right generally, but what he was criticizing specifically turned out to be uh, a large part of, of why markets and credit went, went through its collapse. Uh, so with no further ado, here is my conversation with Paul Wilmot. I have an extra special guest. His name is Paul Wilmot. How do I describe him? He is a expert in quantitative finance, a researcher, an author, uh, a consultant, a professor. He has written over 100 research papers on mathematics and finance, several best-selling and some would say groundbreaking textbooks. He runs what is the biggest quantitative analysis website uh, in the world. Uh, no lesser a critic than Nassim Taleb described him as the smartest quant in the world, the only one who truly understands what's going on, who uses his head and has a sense of ethics, Paul Wilmot. Welcome to Bloomberg. Hi, it's a pleasure to be here. I have to correct you. Okay. Already I have to correct you. I'm not and never have been a professor. I'm a mere doctor, I'm afraid. Weren't you a lecturer? I, I've, been, I've had all sorts of research positions in mm -hmm. universities, but never reached that exalted... Uh, I'll tell you why I drew that conclusion. There is a YouTube video of you describing some of the chapters of some of your textbooks, and you just have a natural professorial air. I, I have this thing, don't I? And, and I drew the assumption that I perhaps should not have drawn. So let's talk a little bit about um, your research, your work, your writing... Uh, I have to start out with a quote of yours from one of your papers. The paper published in 2000 was The Use, Misuse, and Abuse of Mathematics and Finance. That title alone is, is a good place to start. But here's the quote that was so prescient. 
It's clear that a major rethink is desperately required if the world is to avoid a mathematician-led market meltdown. That is pretty much dead on. And seven years later, we had the quant crash. And a year after that, we had the full-blown great financial crisis. What were you looking at that gave you such a clear understanding of, of the coming storm? Well, I also, a few years after that, I wrote that. I did um, specify that I thought it was going to be credit derivatives that might be the problem. So even more specific. Yes, and that, that's because of my background. I, I haven't taken the, the classical quant route. And I come with a, a lot of uh, skepticism, mm -hmm. and I'm not a great fan of following the herd. So whenever I look at mathematical models, I can pretty much tell you whether they're, they're based on any reality or maybe whether there's any dangers involved um, with the, you know, the hedging or the valuation. And everywhere I looked, I just saw there were, there were dangers. It was not so, the, the models for equities are not too bad in quantitative finance. The models for interest rates are pretty bad bad, except mm -hmm. interest rates don't really do much, uh, certainly not the moment anyway. Um, but credit, the models are not only are the models really, really bad in terms of not matching reality and how they're used, but also credit markets are absolutely enormous. Tremendous. In fact, the, also from the same paper, the underlying assumptions of financial models, such as the importance of normal distribution, the elimination of risk, measurable correlations, etc., are all incorrect. Yes. And and when I read that, I, I was reminded of the famous George Box quote, all models are wrong, but some are useful. And, and I know that's sort of a bastardization of, of what he really was intended, but the natural next question is, are all models wrong, and how can you tell the ones that are useful from the ones that are dangerous? Well, models in finance are going to be wrong. And it's By definition, you can't, yeah, you can't perfectly understand no, what's not, happening. Not at all. Um, and as for the word useful, I think you have to ask what is meant by useful. And there are, there are various ways of looking at this. Uh, useful, are they useful in helping you uh, control risk? Are they helpful in uh, allowing you to do more business? There are all sorts of different angles. And some of these are sort of conflict with what the man in the street might want. For example, mm -hmm. a model might be useful because it's great for marketing and it you know it fools the regulators and oh, it's, right. it's not very good, but hey, it's, it's useful if you're going to try and start a really big hedge fund. Um, so it depends what you mean. I, you, I don't think that's what Professor Box was referring exactly, to. Exactly. However, exactly. It, they certainly have conserved useful purposes, albeit perhaps not accurately predicting what the universe may look like. Exactly. So you'd hope that when we talk about having a model that's useful, you'd, you'd like to think in terms of, oh, it, it allows us to um, manage our risk or hedge our risk, something like that, or, or produce uh, important new products that are helpful in you know, hedging your business or whatever. But uh, I'm a bit too cynical to, to think of... So you said you didn't take the, the usual route into quantitative finance. How, what was your route? How did you find your way into quant finance? And how does that differ from the typical quant on Wall Street? Well, you have to go back to my, my, my childhood, really. Uh, I've always, from a very young age, run my own businesses uh, of various sizes. And even when I was a mathematician at university doing my doctorate or doing postdoctoral work, I was always uh, interacting with the real world, trying to do consultancy, etc. 
And it meant that I I saw a lot of different problems from fields outside of finance. Uh, in fact, when I started in finance in, in the uh, the late 80s, before that, I, I didn't even know there was any mathematics in finance, but I'd, I'd work for uh, aeronautical companies, for steel companies, for uh, all sorts of different businesses where you try and take a physical problem and, and turn it into something mathematical. Mm-hmm. And then a colleague introduced me to these things called options. This was in the, uh, it was actually um, just before the 87 crash. And just looking into the literature, I found, hey, there's, there's real mathematics uh, involved in, 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 in um, derivatives. And so I started just to apply the same principles of mathematical modeling to derivatives as I had to all these other real-world physical processes that I'd, I'd worked on. Actually, the, when I first saw the famous Black-Scholes uh, equation, um, I thought, this is, this is great. This is just like second-year undergraduate mathematics. <laughs> um, these days, apparently, you're supposed to have a PhD, but actually, that's, that's, a, that's a load of nonsense. Um, most quant finance is just second-year undergraduate maths. Some of the book is really quite fascinating. You start out with a history of investment theory, and I thought skipping from the South Sea bubble to Adam Smith to the efficient market hypothesis, what is the connective tissue between all three of those major events in in the history of finance? Well, what you I think what you start to see is um, going from um, just people's personal experience through to trying to lay down some principles and then trying to quantify those principles. Mm-hmm. So we're up to the period now, the modern era, when pretty much everything in finance is all quantified. Everything's all in terms of um, expected returns and volatility and quantities like that. It could be reduced to mathematical models. Everything's become mathematics, yes. Right. So, so then I always thought of the random walk theory as a sort of squishy psychological claim that, hey, you know, uh, some maybe some people can beat the market, but you're probably not one of them and you probably can't pick them. And then once we bring in taxes and costs and everything else, you're better off just indexing. But you relate the whole concept of random walk to probability theory. What ties these two together? Well, if you go back to the, the different types of analysis that people do in, in finance, you've got fundamental analysis, which is about trying to figure out by looking at the company report, company's reports and the, the directors, etc., the, the products, how much is this company really worth? Uh, now, that's very difficult to do. That's a lot of analysis is required. Um, I mean, can you read balance sheets? I can't read balance no. sheets. No, not without falling to. asleep halfway exactly, through. Exactly, exactly. So, but the real problem is is that you're not trying to predict what the 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 uh, market value of a company should be, because you're trying to predict what other people, the people who are buying selling shares, think. Keynes' so, famous beauty Keynes, contest. Exactly. So there's, you move on to fundamental. Uh, sorry, move on from fundamental to technical analysis, which is exact opposite. Which is really easy. You, you, you draw a chart do some trend lines and some patterns. Problem is, that sort of thing, statistically speaking, doesn't work. I mean, the, the, the scientific evidence suggests that the vast majority of that doesn't work. So the, the great breakthrough of the 50s, 60s, 70s was to say, let's throw all that away. Let's just say, you know, we can't predict things. We've got the, the concept of the efficient market hypothesis um, as a sort of background for this, but let's just say it's like tossing a coin. Now, is it a tossing a biased coin? What's the chance of heads? What's the t- chance of tails? So you put numbers to these probabilities. 
And the, the sort of the, from that, we get lots of theories about um, derivatives valuation. And once you've got derivatives, you, you, you can value derivatives, you can create new instruments, and the new instruments might require new, math, new mathematics. So you have this snowballing effect where you've got the mathematics increasing and the number and type of products simultaneously increasing. So there's a quote in the book I really like, and, and I'm going to mangle this a little bit. No investment strategy based on mainstream finance theory can protect, protect investors from market-wide crashes. First, is anyone really suggesting, hey, our strategy is going to protect you? Is that I, I guess that's naive of me to, to, to ask, but do people really believe, oh, here's the magic 1987-like portfolio insurance that will protect us? I'm sure there are some things you can do. Um, there, there are all sorts of nuances here. I, I remember Nassim, my dear pal, Nassim Taleb, telling me about his um, the way he pitches this this idea, uh, and that is to say it's insurance. Mm-hmm. It's not a portfolio. It's not investment. It's insurance. You're going to lose money. In fact, you hope you'll lose money because if you make money on this insurance, it's because your house is burnt down, right. which you don't want to have, have happen. So that's quite you know that's a, a psychological way of looking at, at this. Getting the putting in place the the um, the protection as a as a as a cost rather as an investment. Um, there are some things you can do. Of course, the famous portfolio um, dynamic uh, portfolio insurance of the of the 80s was a, was a classic example of um, of a feedback effect, a positive feedback effect that the the very action of trying to protect your portfolio. Is what caused made the it crash, worse, made yeah. it worse, which now, is a beautiful concept. What what I don't understand is who thought, oh, if the market is crashing, I'll go out and buy some puts, and that'll protect me. Summing it up that way, how did anybody think that that model was valid? And granted, there's a little hindsight bias here, but still, right. it sounds so obvious after the fact that that would not work. Right. I don't know. I don't know. Um, <laughs> the I think the I think in all of this that a key thing you've always got to remember is that the psychology of the markets and that the, the whatever the mathematical models say somehow human beings in this particular field do try to do manage to mess up the uh, the models. So here's a, another mangled quote. Bankers offering complex financial products don't o- always understand the risks and that when a bank goes bust, stock markets collapse, house prices tumble, it's your bank account, your shares, and your home equity that suffers. Right. Well, it's certainly true in my experience that bankers and especially regulators, I have to say, do not know as much as they ought to. Um, if they were doctors and they didn't know, you know, um, which some is, leeches do a little bleeding. Exactly, we're all good. or you know, which side is the heart on? <laughs> you know, that sort of thing. Then there'd be lawsuits flying. But bankers, in my experience, there's a lot of herd mentality uh-huh. within bankers, and that works for them. That's how, that's how they they make money is from from pretending there are no risks, and you know, uh, although they may deep down they may realise there are risks, and regulators. I haven't met that many regulators. I don't seem to bump into them very often, maybe because of the things I've said about them in the past. But <laughs> my experience is often they're very good at book learning. You know, they've they've got they've read the maths books, they know the models, but they're sorely lacking in street smarts. In my experience, so they don't really understand how the world works. So you have in the past suggested a solution to the problem of both 
bankers that don't understand risk and regulators that don't know how to regulate it is a Tobin tax on each transaction, a 0.008% tax on any buy, sell, any trade whatsoever. And how would that work and how would that protect markets? You're very good with your numbers. Um, the, the idea of the Tobin tax is to stop a very high-frequency trading because uh, you then lose the high frequency. The problem with one of the problems with high-frequency trading is that you lose the connection between the value mm-hmm. of a share company and the price. It just becomes about you know the, the, these these uh, some time series of numbers, and it, it could be anything. It doesn't right. matter. It's, it, but there's a company here, and there are people who's you know, jobs are on the line. Let's talk a little bit about uh, the time you spent at Kaisa Capital. Kaisa Capital. Two people separated by a common language. So you were a founding partner of the Volatility Arbitrage Hedge Fund, which was running uh, about $200 million. It's just under $200 million, yes. And so, so tell us a little bit about Volatility Arbitrage, which is sort of ironic in these days of almost no volatility. It's interesting that, that it's very difficult, to, I find, I, I found, to predict the direction a stock is going to go, up or down. Mm-hmm. But it seems to be easier, and there are statistical reasons for this, actually, but it seems to be easier to, um, to forecast volatility, how much noise there, in a, there is in a stock. Huh. So you predict- Sort of counterintuitive, though, that you, you, it's harder to find the signal and it's easier to yeah. find the noise. Yes, I, I can see that. But... At the same time, you can see what the market is sort of thinking volatility is because options, the valuation of options hinges upon estimation of volatility. So you can say, oh, here's a call option. Uh, what volatility are they plugging into the famous Black-Scholes formula to give that, that price that you see in the market? And so you can, you can back out a thing called implied volatility, which is sort of a bit like what the market thinks. So you, you look around for... Um, when is the implied volatility different, or sufficiently different from your forecast volatility? And if they're different, and if you just happen to be right, then you can make some money. Mm-hmm. So that sounds is, complex. It's it's the purest sort of um, volatility arbitrage. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm betting my forecasts against the market's forecasts, essentially, is what, is what it amounts to. So a not-so-efficient market. Not-so-efficient, not-so-efficient. Now, I don't think anyone believes in efficient markets who's listening to this program, do they? Um, um, <laughs> I think there are a decent number. It's, it's a really interesting point because I think there are a number of people who say, um, uh, look, Cliff Asness, who runs AQR, Gene Fama was his PhD yeah, yeah. dissertation advisor. Yeah. And to Fama's credit, he said, "Hey, if you want to go out and prove factors work, I, I, I'll, I'm happy with that." Yeah, yeah. So we know the market is kind of, sorta, mostly, eventually efficient. Is that a, is that a fair way to describe it? Not necessarily. It, it depends whether there's any mechanism for for removing any efficiency. People just say, "Oh, the, you know," the, the people say things like, "The market's always right." And, and uh, well, we know that's certainly not. How, no, how exactly. Could, how could the market be? 23% lower the day after the crash. Was it right the day before? Was it right the day after? Is it wrong both times? It's kind of hard to say the market is always right. Right. Well, one, an example I, I sometimes give my students is about, 
uses um, the idea of car insurance. Mm-hmm. For example, suppose you've got a twenty thousand dollar car, and your annual car insurance is let's use simple numbers a thousand dollars. A quant would say, "Oh, oh it's a twenty thousand dollar car. It's a thousand dollar car insurance. Oh, that means there must be a five percent chance of crashing." Mm-hmm. And because they're missing out from that five percent, the fact that the insurance company needs to make a profit and right. they're doing things on average, all sorts of things. So, so the way your typical quant or, or um, Chicago finance professor looks at things uh, is, in a, is in a very pure way that sort of misses all the fun. What mm-hmm. I think of, and uh, as I've said before, I, I, I've been running businesses since I was a, a child, virtually, and the business side of things is what makes things interesting, and. So when we approach this, sort of going back to volatility arbitrage, you'd be amazed at if you looked at the literature. The there must be tens of thousands of papers which talk about um, how to how to back out from from uh, market prices, what the implied volatility is, and how as- they assume that the implied volatility is right, that the market knows, the market has a crystal ball, it knows what volatility is going to be. Mm-hmm. Must be tens of thousands. How many papers are there which say, well, you know what, what if the market is wrong and the volatility, the real volatility is different from implied volatility? How can you make money? There and that's be. the underlying strategy that's what, that's of strategy. CASA capital. CASA capital. That must, there must be half a dozen papers. And surely that's the most important thing. You've got an option. The, the question is, what am I going to do with this? I could hedge with it or I could make money from it. Mm-hmm. And there's just half a dozen papers on how to make money. So so how did the hedge fund do? The hedge fund was did, did uh, wonderfully for its its uh, lifespan of three years, which mm-hmm. I believe is is the average lifespan of a hedge fund. And And so at the end of the three years, you basically tapped out and said... I'm going to go back to writing. I have well, I, I, I learned a lot from that, that hedge fund. A, a lot of things about, um, not just about hedge funds, but also about, about myself. Um, oh, really? I found that very interesting. Cause the hedge fund was based in New York. Um, and where uh, were you located I was at located in London. So mm-hmm. there was a, this five-hour time difference. And, and just as things were getting uh, interesting in New York was when I was you know, sitting down to dinner or wanting to go to bed or something like that. So that was kind of frustrating. Let's talk about the Wilmot business model. So you run the website. Yeah. You have a, a print magazine. Yeah. You have a Paul and Dominic quant recruitment. The book, which we all know is Books of Giant Moneymakers. What is your business model as quant expert? Well, the, the Paul and Dominic's doesn't exist anymore. That That's gone. Down a few, okay. Yes. But the, and also there was the, um, we talk about the world's largest quant website. It, it's also apparently the world's most expensive magazine. Mm-hmm. I've been told. I don't know whether that's true or not. <laughs> um, What's the magazine cost? It, it's about $600 for, for six issues. I don't think that's terribly expensive. I and if you it's look not, at, I, I looked it up. It's not actually. This and was, if you look at some of the like the medical journals and stuff, these are thousands of – In fact, there was a big article not too long ago about what used to be academic research now sells for thousands of dollars. And there's two companies yeah. that have sucked up all these – yeah. Formerly free publication. And that, that, that was a quote from Esquire magazine, so I'd just like to, to, to keep, repeat that. <laughs> it's not very useful in marketing, though. There was until recently, well, there still is, the Certificate in Quantitative Finance. Yep. That's, that is, is the world's largest high-level quant education mm-hmm. with, with a company called Seven City. This CQF was, was founded with a company called Seven City Learning uh, in 2003, was it? Mm-hmm. But it was sold up to Fitch about three or four years oh, ago. Oh, really? So, so. But what is the business model? The, the business Business model. Well, my whole business model, all my life, has been 
do something which is fun and then and then I accidentally or I, I always have this urge to turn things into into businesses it's not a it's not a greed thing it's an enthusiasm thing it's mm-hmm. almost like I've got some hobby I'd like to make it public it, it turns, becomes more long lasting and sustainable if there's a, a revenue stream behind it yeah I don't think of it like that no it's just sort of it's something in my DNA that says you know for, for example I, I, I've started to learn the, the ukulele a few years mm-hmm. ago and I just know sometime in my life there will be a time when I'm on a stage and people are paying money to listen to me play the ukulele I'm going to take the other side of that <laughs> trade you should hedge that bet because I don't see that happening no no yeah, I'm pretty good I'm, okay. I'm, getting, I'm getting there I'm getting there oh, no it's not it has but nothing to do with your skill set it has to do with the demand the for live ukulele performances. Oh, you'd be surprised. I would be surprised. Be surprised. It is the instrument. All the schools are taking up ukulele because it's, it's. I'm on the other side of that trade also. No, no. What, <laughs> what did you learn at school? Uh, trombone and oh, piano. Wow. I wanted to do the trombone, but they wouldn't I let me. I hated the trombone. Okay. Because at least the piano, there's a distinct key yeah, yeah. for each note. The yeah, trombone, yeah. as yeah. a 10-year-old, you have to have an ear to know oh, when you're more or less... And I had a pretty good ear, but not that good. But they, at schools in, in the UK, at least, they traditionally you, you learn the recorder, you know, three sure. by three. Oh, we all did that. Okay. That's a um, given. But now the ukulele is replacing the recorder. Because really? The, because it's it's easier. You know, you can play okay. Really, really. Ten minutes. I, I should have brought it, my ukulele. I'm sorry you didn't. That would have been great. Next time. Next time. What, what do we get onto this? So yeah, business, business models. models. Right. You're going to you're gonna monetize ukulele, ukulele. performance. So, but, but I've always been like that. And so... I've going back to, to, to the late 80s, I was doing some research with, with colleagues at university, and we thought, let's, let's, why don't we give some courses on teach people in the city? And they just were phenomenally successful. Really? And so we set up a business, which, and, then, and then we turned it into a book, and it was, it was suggested, why don't we self publish this book? So rather than just hand the book over to a publisher, we actually published it and printed it, etc. And um, and my mother and my stepfather were in charge of sales. So, uh-huh. so my poor mother, we, we put in the advertising, we'd say 24-hour <laughs> fax hotline. <laughs> um, so her phone would be ringing. And how did the book sell? Oh, it, 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 incredibly well. It was it was it was just unbelievable. Considering we did hardly any advertising, this is before Amazon. It did it incredibly well um, by word of mouth. I mean, even before the book came out, people mm-hmm. were talking about it. People, I think, people were paying something like two hundred and fifty dollars for a a hard copy that you had to cut and paste the pictures into the text. And I don't mean cut and paste like you do, you know, with a with a mouse. You mean I physically, mean, scissors and glue. So they would get two piles. They get the, the with without the, the images, and then a separate pile with the images. And they pay two hundred fifty dollars to stick the two together. And this was on quantitative finance. Quantitative finance. Yeah. And this was way early in the rise of of the quants. This was this was ninety two or thereabouts. Okay, so so uh, there were there were a few third fourth inning. You know, there were a few books out there, but this one was a different style of book. And then from then it turned into software companies. Um, more publishing, etc. Were, were you selling this in the UK, in the US, worldwide? Worldwide, yeah. My mother and the fax machine. Yeah, yeah. Seriously. Worldwide. Oh, and we, it did we, very we, well. we, we, we had, um, we would give courses in, in down in Wall Street, and we would bring over from the UK boxes full of these books to get, to sell to people on on the uh, on the courses. It was, and you'd sell them all out. Sell them all out every thing. time. Yeah. Um, that's pretty fascinating. Do you still self-publish? Because you have a number of books. To your credit, I, this is Wiley, but what uh, the money formula? But the other quantitative finance books are you self Well, as as you uh, mentioned earlier, or hinted earlier, you don't make a lot of money usually from from books mm-hmm. unless you're 
J.K. Rowling or, or right. someone. Um, so the, the, there came a point where the it was th- there were other things that were more um, profitable, more successful, and the the books became more of a hobby um, or a, a publicity marketing tool, really. Hmm. Are financial models making people? Uh, overconfident and reckless in how they behave in the market. Well, I don't know whether it's true or not, but I, I certainly heard that, it, that actually the um, um, accidents involving pedestrians and cyclists have gone up for exactly the Texted. same. Because, no, 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 no. Because of pe- because people feel safe in their car and they've got all these 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 cushions and, and whatnot, mm-hmm. they're less likely to be um, injured. But people drive faster, and so they kill more pedestrians. So uh, I, my assumption is they're I texting when they're hitting bicyclists. No, no. But the or the pedestrians are playing with their phones. No, it could be, could be, could be. Oh, pedestrians aren't they awful? Um, it depends. It's subjective. When you're driving a car, they're awful. And when you're a pedestrian, look at these crazy drivers. Cyclists, what about anything. cyclists? In Manhattan, horrifying. Yeah. Um, you can cut all that out. We get to trouble. No, that's great stuff. Um, the, <laughs> yeah, the, what you should do, of course, is just stick knives in the in the in the steering wheel you mm-hmm. get rid of all of them, and then you drive very very safely i suspect not unless then then we just get a metal <laughs> thing over your chest and that's true, that's true. You, what can you, do? you would be what fine can you do? what can you do it's um and you'd have to make sure it doesn't pop up and catch you and yeah. but um but it's, it's 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 i do again going back to regulators regulators don't they don't understand uh, I, there's a story i could tell but it involves it's far too technical but there's some some practice that people do in banks called calibration. You don't need to know mm-hmm. what it is, but it's something that that superficially it looks like it's a good mathematical model. But what it actually does is it 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 hides risk. It makes it any ri- model risk mm-hmm. that's there gets hidden by this act of calibration. And when I've spoken to regulators, they they don't really un- really understand that what these people who are calibrating are doing is hiding risk. Instead, they go round telling the banks, "You must calibrate." Which is like saying you must hide risk, which is really not what regulators are supposed to be doing. So let's talk about your wish list when it comes to better regulations, better education, and uh, I believe in the book you call it negative bonuses. So yeah, what, what would your what would your wish list be? Well, obviously more people should go to prison. Um, people should have bonuses. <laughs> How taken about away. some people? Should some go. that's the start, right? Um, the bonus is taken away, uh, but lots of people get paid stupid money. I think CEOs of companies get mm-hmm. paid stupid money, especially in the United just States, just because they go, they went to the same school as some other CEO. That's pretty dodgy. A number of people have blamed the compensation consultants for using seventy five percent as their frame of reference. Oh, let's compare it to the seventy fifth percentile of other CEOs. Right? Why? What, why are you assuming you're better than most of the yeah, other yeah. CEOs out yeah, there? Yeah. Oh. So you have this horrible upward spiral. Oh, it's terrible! It's terrible. But um, also, we, not we, for it, them, but for the rest of yeah, us. Yeah, 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 yeah. In in the um, in the book, we talk about having something like the you know the FAA uh, mm-hmm. who, who regulate planes, something like that for banking and complex financial products. The, the analogy is that whenever you have a new plane, it has to be tested, et cetera, et cetera. Well, if you have a new financial product, it, has to, it should be tested by some people. Um, you can't have too many of these of this specific. You can't have too much concentration risk, just like you can't have too many planes landing at the same airport at the same time. So there are all sorts of analogies we draw between the, um, the, the airline business and um, the world of banking. And, of course, it's an international thing. Uh, planes take off one country, land in another country. Well, how hard can it be to have an international perspective to the uh, to banking regulation? And I have to ask, since you brought it up earlier, 
what motivated you and Professor Emanuel Derman at, at Columbia and formerly of Goldman Sachs to write the Financial Modelers Manifesto? Well, he and I both had pretty much this, this, the same um, thought at the same time about... I mean, we've both been very skeptical about mathematical models. Um, there's one subtle difference, though, <laughs> and that is Emanuel Derman has an, his name attached to one which means he's kind of got a bit of skin in the game there, which right. I haven't got. So I can be slightly more, um, you know, uh, than he can, if you, if you catch my drift. Uh, anyway, yes. um, but both of us are, are very sceptical about, um, uh, about the, what quants do and, and risk managers in, in banks and hedge funds. And it was shortly after the, the crisis that we, we both had apparently independently thought we should write something, which is, and we teamed up, and it was a combination of uh, Karl Marx and uh, the Hi- Hippocratic Oath that mm-hmm. we, we, we got our inspiration from. First, do no harm. Yes, yes. We have been speaking with Paul Wilmot. He is a f- expert in quantitative finance. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. Check out my daily column on bloombergview.com. You could follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Hi, I'm Ron Kraszewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Welcome to the podcast. Paul, thank you so much for doing this. I'm, I've been looking forward to having this conversation. I wish I can keep you for another couple of hours, um, but I have to get to at least two questions before I jump to my standard questions. This is, this is from the book, The Notional Value of Derivatives in 2010 – was $1.2 quadrillion. Is that correct? Yes. Are we still in any sort of risk from a blow-up in derivatives? My, my assumption is most of that $1.2 quadrillion offsets itself. What is the yeah. actual amount that has us at any sort of risk? It's it's hard to tell because yes, that, that is notional. So it could be that you, know, you might have that could be one point two million uh, million quadrillion in swaps. So it mm-hmm. might just be one percent of that is at risk, um, which is still say, not nothing. One well, percent of a quadrillion. However you cal- exactly, however you uh, calculate it, it's it's too large because it's 
that 1.2 quadrillion, even if you take off a, you know, a zero or two, you're still left with something which is... Trillions. Um, which is, and the, the world, uh, the GDP of the world is something like 50 trillion. So th- it's, it's the wrong way around. It's almost like finance is supposed to be a, a service industry, but it's almost like people are making chairs and tables and whatever just to keep the finance industry going because the numbers... The tail is wagging exactly, the dog. Exactly, 1% is what, $120 billion? Is that what we're talking about off of... One point two no, quadrillion. Twelve trillion. Twelve trillion. Yes, yes, and yeah. So that's still that's still a quarter Shh. of the world's GDP. Oh. Even if you take off two zeros, the, yeah. the numbers numbers are just mind-boggling. Yes. Um, and uh, there are all these. Since you were running a volatility hedge fund, one of the questions I forgot to ask you before: there are currently all these short volatility products out right. there. What What are your thoughts on these? Well, in our experience, it was definitely the case that um, options tended to be overpriced. So in terms of, of, a, of a strategy, you would be selling vanilla options because they're overpriced. But the problem with selling options is when you have some extreme events, then you just blow up. Right. So you, you need to make sure that you've got plenty of tail protection in case that happens, which is something that we, we specialized in. And that's why you're friends with Nassim Taleb. Indeed. Oh, we, we go way back. I recall having a lunch with him. It was just three of us in the middle of the financial crisis. It had to be the summer of 08 before AIG and Lehman blew up. Yeah. And we were at, I, I can't even tell you the restaurant, Kalari Taverna on 44th Street. Normally, you have to make reservations a week in advance. We walk in at 1 o'clock. It's empty. We sit right down. The three of us were just laughing away. Um He's. In, I don't have to tell you. He's incredibly entertaining, and we were talking about specifically how parts of this were so obvious coming down the pike. And no, it's not that people didn't see it. Nobody wanted to believe it. Yeah, it, it was quite quite astonishing. Yeah, yeah. No, he's he's a very interesting person. You have to be careful when you're around him because dramatic things always happen. Yes, always, always. He'll he's be, a magnet. He'll be getting. He'll be getting. Some text messages which will tell about like some astronomical sales of his books or some deal he's involved in, or the markets are doing something crazy. I was I, I was with him. I was with him September um, the eleventh. Yeah, oh, really? In the, in, in the, by Liverpool Street Station, when we got the phone call saying what happened, I was with him. Uh, I think it was July the seventh um, in London. Uh, a few years later, when when we had uh, four bombs mm-hmm. went off, we, we were giving a course that day and. Um, no, it's, things happen you know, a- around him. With, with Nassim, yeah. It makes sense that he wrote The Black Swan because he, yes. is, he is a black swan. Yes, the, indeed he is. So it's, it's ironic, at the same time that his book came out, the film The Black Swan came out. So if you Google Unrelated, black, right. Completely. Um, so let's get to some of our, our favorite questions that we ask all of our guests. Tell me the most important thing people don't know about your background. I think it's I've never had a job. Is that true? That, well, not, not really. I had a job when I was when I was seventeen for three weeks. Wait, um, I know, you had a job. You were a professional juggler. Oh, now you see. Well, I didn't have a boss. What I mean okay. is, I, I've never really had a boss. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been running business since since I was about nine years old, including including the the, the juggling. That I Which was, is on your the bio on your website. I yes. saw that, and I'm like, this has to be a typo. No, Wait, no, no, he, no. Uh, he, your, your a bio. 
Professional juggler, yeah. undercover investigator. Oh, yeah, that was good. First man in the UK to obtain an online divorce. That's correct. Yes. Uh, these are these are rather unusual curriculum vitae details. It's not. It's, it's because um, it, I'm very bad at, at taking risks physically. I don't take any physical risks. Okay. I don't take many financial risks, but I'm happy to take any number of reputational risks you can throw at me. So, that, for example. <laughs> Two years ago, and a, a friend of mine who works for a, um, Channel Four TV uh, channel mm-hmm. in the UK, he wanted. He said he wanted to do some uh, investigative undercover thing um, to, to find out were the political parties in the UK corrupt. Mm-hmm. If you offered them money, how far could you get? Now, previously, you would have someone pretend to be someone, and they said they wanted to go a step further. In this age of Google, they want to have someone who was real. A real business person who didn't mind making himself look stupid. Right. And so he thought of me. And so <laughs> so for six months, I had to um, have meetings with all sorts of politicians of the main parties in the UK. And offer them money. And offer them money and try and see how, what would happen, how far, far I could go, all without entrapping them. So, that, you know, and all often. I now, aren't have, you at risk for committing a crime in the United States, offering an elected official cash to do your bidding is a felony. Well, there are nuances here, indeed. Uh-huh. And they had teams of lawyers. And because, actually, because it was a um, it was a TV program rather than a newspaper, the, the, the TV channels have a very strict rules. So, for example, we couldn't do... I, I ended up doing lots of um, hidden in camera, camera stuff. Uh-huh. Uh, but it, you're not allowed to do that for TV unless you've got grounds. So we did a lot of preparatory stuff, and we got some, some sort of dodgy things which fortunately never got recorded and then i went in with the with the equipment on the uh, the pen in the pocket the thing in the in the in the t- did, did you catch letter. anybody yeah yeah the, the, yeah there was a, some somebody had to resign from the lib dem party and that's no, it was great fun I, you know coming to the house of lords with hidden cameras how, how do you how do you smuggle hidden cameras into the into the government well now buildings? you have, go through a metal detector and exactly. everything else it's oh, yeah, uh, harder yeah. to do that exactly exactly all right so let's um fun. so so You've never had a boss is the thing most people don't know about you, but, no. I, but I like the uh, special investigator. Let's talk a little about some of your mentors. Who were, you, who were the people who helped guide your career along? Well, the, I, I guess the, <laughs> the obvious one, my mother. Right. My mother, she, she, always, she always encouraged me to, I, I, this explains the undercover thing, encouraged me to do things even though they might have frightened me. Mm-hmm. Now, again, with the caveat, nothing physical. I always right. you know, got out of games at school just reputational risk yeah or, yeah anything yeah i'm going to draw the line at singing in public though okay that's, that's, so no karaoke no not yeah i'm with Ukulele, you on that but one. Not, to, not to karaoke <laughs> um so 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 i found that that's very helpful that that if if something frightens me i think yeah, i've got to do it now it's frightening me so i've got to do it um that's a good philosophy to have i think so um and this is way before that that book feel the fear and do it anyway way Mm -hmm. before decades before that i'm unfamiliar with that you don't know the book feel feel the fear and do it anyway no oh okay never heard it's some self-help book from the the 80s i think Mm -hmm. um another one there's there's a uh, my tutor and supervisor um john ockenden he, I was very lucky when I was studying mathematics to fall in with a group of people, mathematicians who um, who liked solving real world problems, physical problems, for example, um, using fluid mechanics or, or mm-hmm. things like that. Um, 
because most most mathematicians are quite snobbish about their mathematics, and there's a there's a hierarchy of amongst mathematicians, which is at the very highest of the people who work on these these very profound deep problems, Fermat theoretical, theory, you know, theoretical things that you know to the man in the street no idea of what they're on about or what the relevance are. really but really really tough things tough you know uh, then you, you move down the ranks and and pure mathematicians who work in, in the abstract then you've got applied mathematicians uh-huh. and these this group of people were pretty much the lowest of the low in the sense of the hierarchy in that oh, they really? use the maths to solve real problems um what no, are they thinking? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> but it was great fun. And it, get, it means that, 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 that there are very few people, actually I can only think of one other person in the world, who's got, had such a, a breadth of mathematical experience as I have. That's why I can be very you know, sceptical about the models, because I've seen so much of the mathematical world that other people haven't seen. And of course, when I started working in finance, they had to develop a, a, a whole new category, even lower than the lowest of the low for people working in mathematical finance. So I have to ask, who is the other person who has a similar breadth of mathematical experience? Pat Hagen. Oh, really? Pat Hagen. He's, um, uh, yeah, he's, he's, he's worked on, on a lot of volatility stuff. He's a very clever guy. Yeah. But so, he's, he's, had a, he's had a boss many times. Ah, so he doesn't have the answer to that question. What, what, Investors have influenced you. Who, who's affected your approach to looking at markets? Um, which investors? I don't really follow people in that sense. That's I'm a good afraid. answer. Everybody um, else says Warren Buffett, but not, not following people is an even better answer. I'm, I'm, I have this, this, this talent, which is if, if, if people say one thing, I say the exact opposite. Mm-hmm. And there comes a point where I don't really know what my own opinion is. You're just, just you're just fading the group. I just just you know annoys people, winds them up, gets I, me into a lot I of like trouble. That. But it, it sort of works. The, uh, yeah. Divergent opinion is yeah, yeah, is a course, thing. Variant perception absolutely works. Let's talk about everybody's favorite question. Yes. Books. What are some of your favorite books? Finance, fact, fiction, or nonfiction? Finance, non-finance. I almost never, never ever read. Nonfiction, almost never. You only read fiction. I pretty much only ever read. See, fiction. I love nonfiction, I and I never. I I love fiction, and I never get to it. Oh, okay. So okay. most of what I read is is nonfiction. I, I find that the most of the the nonfiction that that I try to read is sort of obvious, and I think I feel I should subscribe to one of these things where they condense a five hundred page book into two pages. So history, um, biography, some biographies, but the. the not, not, Give us a few uh, times. What, what do you like? So if you so, so if I'm you a, prefer fiction, so prefer fiction. I I'd say one of my my all time favorite books is um, the the Life and Opinions of Tristram Shandy, gentleman, by okay. Lawrence Stern, mid eighteenth mm-hmm. uh, century, I think it was. Uh, it's a totally well, I can't even begin to describe it. It's been described as the, as as, the, as an unfilmable unfilmable book because it's it's so i can't even begin to describe it you should read it have you okay. read it i have not it's it's a fantastic book but i tend to to alternate fiction, fiction. i tend to alternate between yeah yeah the life and opinions of tristram shandy he's he's fictional Tristan um, tristram tristram shandy okay um I tend to alternate between what you might call a classic book and then something just to just to recover from the classic book. Mm-hmm. And I, 
I'm very, I'm now very impatient with books. Up until the age of 30, I would say that if I started a book, I had to finish it. And I, you know, you get, uh, you get over that pretty quickly. I got, it, was a, it was the greatest thing that ever happened to me, other than birth of my children, right. was to realize that I could just stop reading a book. Put it um, away. Oh, this is exactly. disappointing. So, I, yep. so I, you know, if a book's more than, say, 400 pages, I probably won't even buy it. Uh-huh. Um, if, it if it gets rave reviews on Amazon, um, if it's kind of cl- classical, then I might avoid it because I know it's, you know, critiques mm-hmm. are a bit funny. Uh, and I'll alternate between maybe some classic and something easy. One, one thing I've discovered relatively recently is, is Lee Child. Now, you know Lee Child. Sure. Uh, Jack Reacher exactly. or... But the fascinating yeah. thing about My wife him, plows through those books. The fascinating thing is, of all the kind of... It's not exactly pulp fiction, but it's heading that direction. He's the only one that middle-class people will admit to reading. Oh, really? Yes, yes. The it's, funny it's thing is, if you've seen the movie... It's a short white guy, but in the, in the in the book, it's a tall black guy. I don't know why they didn't cast that. He's not black. Um, he's tall. He, no, he's not. I don't think he's black. I thought he was. I don't know. How many have you read? Um, uh, one. Okay. My wife's read, <laughs> my wife's read ten. Okay. Well, um, we should call her. I, I have to. I'll have to ask. I could be wrong. But we can definitely agree that Tom Cruise is, is a short white guy uh, for sure, to say the least. Yeah. Um, let's uh, one other book. Give me one other thing you've read recently. Something I've read. Oh, okay, okay, okay. And enjoyed. Oh, okay, okay. No, or, or you don't have to have enjoyed. I mentioned earlier J.K. Rowling. Uh huh. She wrote this. So she, under she, a pseudonym, the book. Which one? I don't remember, but she's done this one called "The Cuckoo's Calling," something uh-huh. like that. It's awful. I mean, really. Oh, I mean, really? really. I loved the Harry Potter books. Uh huh. Loved them, but this is dire. It's like Agatha, she's trying to be Agatha Christie, but it's like three times as long as it should be. And you just don't. I, I, I finished that just because I, you know, what did, how, who, who done it? But by the time you get to the end, you realize anybody could have done it. And she just picked randomly. So you just did It was rubbish. Don't uh, avoid. Don't read it. Good. No, please. All right. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cross that off my list. Um, so since you first started following quantitative finance, uh, what's changed in the, in the industry? What do you think is the, is it, Te- the rise of technology? Is it the wholesale adoption? What What is the big shift in quantitative finance? The, well, it, technology, you have to mention technology, indeed. Um, but that's happened everywhere, not just in, in quantitative finance, but also the number of people, mm-hmm. the, the sheer quantities of people. and It's taken over finance, pretty much. It has, and I'm not sure that the, the, the people are necessarily as good as they used to be. Mm-hmm. That's my sense. Diluting the talent pool just through sheer numbers or the wrong be, people it, it, being attracted to it? It's a bit of both. And also education. I, I, I have my own educational program, the Certificate in Quantitative Finance. But most people go through master's in finance programs of financial engineering at university. And they're taught by by people who don't necessarily understand how the the uh, how the markets work, or you you yourself have mentioned between us, we've mentioned various the psychological side of things, mm-hmm. and you really have to understand human nature really almost before you start doing the mathematics, mm-hmm. um, and that's something people completely miss. They they think the models explain everything, and most of these programs people go on that that. that taught the mathematics, but they're not taught when things break down, why things break down, etc. So education is pretty bad, I think. So tell us about a time you failed and what you learned from the experience. A time I failed. 
Um, the there's, there's there's one. This may be a bit cheesy. It may not be strictly true, but it sounds quite good. There was a time. <laughs> <laughs> there was a. I must have been about thirteen, and there was a there was a phase of we were all playing all the card games and gambling. You know, just for pennies, really pennies, because this is mm-hmm. this is in the early nineteen seventies. And I remember one time um, making a bet with Billy Jones. Billy Jones. My, Billy being Jones. He's Billy Jones in, in my class, Billy Jones. Oh, okay. <laughs> Another 13-year-old. Gotcha. Um, and it was, I think, I think it was about 7p, right? It was all the money I had in my pocket, 7p. And I lost this bet. And it was a stupid, stupid, stupid bet. But, but I made the bet and I lost it. And clearly, it's, it, you know, you can see me crying now as we speak. It's, it's had an impact <laughs> on, my, on my entire life. And I think it's, it's made me very risk-averse. Uh, well, we're um, all we're all theoretically somewhat risk averse, but you suffered a little. Um, it's actually helpful. The worst thing in the world that can happen to someone oh, is they walk early. into a casino yeah, yeah. and win money. Yes, exactly. Or their first time they start trading, they make money. Yeah, you're much better off experiencing oh, yeah. loss yeah, up yeah. front. No, I've, I've got Billy Jones to thank. You. That's right. That's yeah. right. Let's let's jump to my our last and two favorite questions. Uh, these are the ones that seem to have the most amount of resonance with people. So if a recent college graduate or a millennial would come up to you and say, I'm interested in a career in quantitative finance, what sort of advice would you give them? Oh, okay. What would I, hmm. it's, it's, what do people, what do people usually say for this sort of thing then? It, it ranges from. It ranges from uh, I'm the wrong person to ask to let me tell you these three things and never forget them and everything <laughs> in between. Okay, well I'm going to I'm going to give you another point on the spectrum, mm-hmm. that, which is have children early. Okay, postpone the career thing. Really, as much as you can. Do you have children? No. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm I'm a late bloomer. I would say have children early because most people talk about oh they they want to have this get their career kick started mm. and when they talk about their career they're always talking about um, I don't know being a lawyer or a, or a quant or something it's not like they're curing cancer right or anything. it can wait I mean, it can wait you, being a lawyer can wait and so it really it really upsets me when I see people who who you, just good around children but they've anyway so that would be it just wait a while and have children first. And our last and final question, what do you know about quantitative finance today that you wish you knew 25 years ago? One thing that, that I realized sort of halfway through that period would be that the, there's a, a lot of people have names attached to models. But usually those models, I don't know if offend any friends of mine here, but usually those models... Offend away. Offend away. How many people listen to this? No, no just, it's just, just the me. two of us. The, they come up with a model, and usually it's, it's a, a minor tweak to, to something, to some other model. And it's not necessarily a great model in any way, shape, or form. In it's fact, a bad model tweaked bad to model. be something else. To be even worse. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Not so, even to be better, to no, be worse. No. Yeah. Usually it's tweaked to make it easier to use. And I mean, you, you did not know that 25 years ago? I didn't realize that that was sort of important. Um, and I'm, I wonder, if I knew that 25 years ago, would I have, have taken a different route? I, I, I really hope I wouldn't because my route has always been to do whatever I think is fun 
Mm-hmm. And that's why if you look at my list of papers, there are all sorts of crazy things in, that, in my list of papers. Um, so this isn't really something I, I wish I knew I would take advantage of. I would like to think I knew it and I decided not to do it. It's that, it's that, it's that, it's, it's Keynes again. I think it's Keynes. Uh-huh. Um, it is, he says, it is better to fail conventionally yes. than to su- succeed unconventionally. And I very much succeeded unconventionally. unconventionally. So I don't know where I'm going with any of this. <laughs> but, it, but it's fascinating nonetheless. <laughs> we have been speaking with Paul Wilmot, quantitative finance expert and author, his, his latest book. Paul, what's the name of your new book? It's The Money Formula. Dodgy finance, pseudoscience, and how mathematicians took over the markets. If you enjoy this conversation, be sure and look up an inch or down an inch on Apple iTunes, and you can see any of the other 150 or so such conversations we've had. You can find us on Apple iTunes, Overcast, uh, wherever fine podcasts are sold. I would be remiss if I did not thank uh, the crack staff that helps put this podcast together each week. Uh, Medina Parwana is my technical producer and audio engineer. Taylor Riggs is our booker slash producer. Mike Batnick is our head of research. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.